Welcome to the Southside Sermons Podcast. I am Christopher Campbell, pastor of Southside Baptist Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. This message you're about to hear is from God's Word and is offered to you with this prayer that God would give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey His Word. May your faith be strengthened in Jesus and may you grow in your knowledge of Him. If you were to die tonight, would you enter into heaven or would you enter into hell? And I want you to give careful thought to an answer. What would your answer be? If you were to die tonight, would you enter into heaven or would you enter into hell? What is your answer? And how certain are you that you got it right? This is a very effective question to ask a person if you want them to hear what you have to say. Why? It's an effective question because it taps into something that's true for everyone. It speaks about something we all know and many of us fear. Everyone will die. Death is a known. It will happen with certainty. The only exception for death will be for those who believe God's word and belong to Christ, who are alive, who are left when he returns. Besides these, every one of us will experience death. But none of us know when that moment will be. So as a person is confronted with a known, which is death, they are also confronted in that question with an unknown, the timing of one's death. Could I really die tonight? And an honest person would have to admit that it is a possibility. In light of this possibility, a person realizes his or her own mortality and powerlessness to control what is sure to come. In light of this possibility, a person is compelled to think about something of a spiritual and forever nature. This question is so effective because it is shocking. If we want people to hear what we have to say and to believe that what we have to say is important, it is often a very effective strategy to begin with something shocking. In public speaking, it's called a hook. Say something that will grab the attention of your audience and keep their attention until you finish speaking. What Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, is shocking. Jesus says in verse 20, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That statement is even more shocking in the Greek language. To intensify the force of the negative in the Greek language. It will employ two different negative particles, two different words for no, side by side. 
to create a double negative, ou-me, as it does here. It's not so much a phrase meant to be read, but it's a phrase meant to be felt. It says something like, by no means, you will certainly not, you will no, not enter, or as our translation renders it, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a shocking statement said with certainty, and it leaves us all wondering what Jesus means by it and what we must do in response to it so that we might enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is also a shocking statement because it reveals something offensive to many people about the kingdom of heaven, and it is this. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is restricted. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is limited. Christians have not imposed this restriction. Jesus imposes and reveals this restriction. And he has the authority to do so as the king of heaven's kingdom. There are some who will never enter. Not just some, even. But in Jesus' own words, many will never enter. Matthew 7, verse 13. What is Jesus doing? Is he making an evangelistic appeal? Is he saying to the lost, if you were to die tonight, would you enter into heaven or would you enter into hell? You might be surprised to find out that Jesus is not making an evangelistic appeal. Don't hear what Jesus teaches and think, I'm good, I'm heaven bound. This teaching doesn't apply to me. I sure hope those heathen sinners listen. Jesus is not speaking to the lost. Remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the called. When Jesus teaches that you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, he's speaking to the called. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to his followers, his disciples. He's speaking to us. And he is shocking us with terrifying words. Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think, Jesus begins, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus begins the main portion, the main body of the Sermon on the Mount by anticipating his disciples' thoughts. Matthew goes further than that in his gospel account to reveal that Jesus is more than an anticipator of thoughts, but one who knows what others think. And that alone should terrify us all. Jesus knows our thoughts. Not one thought is hidden from him. I certainly don't want you to know all of my thoughts. I don't know about you, but... I have a hard enough time keeping them to myself anyway. Does anyone here 
want a public screening of all your thoughts. We could put them up on the screen so everyone could see. Anyone? Every thought of every doubt, every fear, every failure, God sees and knows. Jesus would not have wasted words by saying, do not think, if his disciples were not thinking or would be tempted to think in this way. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus is correcting wrong thinking about his coming. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why is heaven's king on earth? What did he come to do? What will he do? What will he abolish? Jesus' choice of words are intentional here. What we think about his coming doesn't matter. What he says about his coming matters. But our thoughts and assumptions get in the way of the truth so often. Whenever we get to thinking and start assuming, which way do our thoughts tend to lead us? Do they usually lead us in a positive direction or a negative direction? More often than not, we tend to think the worse. We think negatively. A person who assumes, do they usually assume correctly? More often than not, their assumption is proven wrong. Most of the time, church, our thoughts are negative. Most of the time, our assumptions are wrong. I have been your pastor now for 17 months. Only the first six months resembled anything like what we would call normal. The last year has created a fertile field for assumptions to grow as we get to know each other. Assumptions you've made about me and assumptions about our future together. And I've learned that this is a natural thing, especially with a new pastor and a new congregation. And while I feel like I've been here for a very long time, in reality, it's been just a short while. A seasoned pastor shared this week in a conference call that I was on that when he was first introduced to a new congregation, he greatly underestimated how his presence alone was a major change for the people that he pastored. Before he even made a decision or led with any vision or pointed in any direction, the fact that he was standing in front of this people breathing was a sufficient and significant change for them. A different face, a different personality, a different look. And he's right. I point this out to say that we can imagine together, in part, the kind of thoughts and assumptions that the disciples of Jesus might have been thinking or entertaining about who he is and what he might do. And this is why Jesus instructs his disciples not to think a certain way, not to assume. What we think is less of a concern 
than what is right. Assumptions are what they are because they are void of evidence of truth. But we are a people who seek after the truth and know where to find it in Christ and in his word. And we have all the evidence that we need. Jesus anticipates a thought and he answers it with a truth. And it is a truth about him, why he has come. The focus of the Sermon on the Mount is not on they who are blessed or you who are salt and light. The focus of the Sermon on the Mount, as should every spiritual teaching, is upon him, upon Jesus. Jesus speaks about himself with authority. I have come, he says. And the truth that Jesus presents about himself is found in what he has said long before and the evidence of the words of the law and the prophets. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The phrase law and prophets was a reference to what we know as the Old Testament scriptures. If we were to look at a Hebrew Bible and turn to the back spine or to the title page, we would not find the title, the Old Testament. We would not find the title, the Hebrew scriptures. Instead, the Hebrew Bible goes by the title, law, prophets, and writings. These are the three main groupings of text contained in the Old Testament. Law and prophets was a shortened way of speaking about the Old Testament scriptures. Scriptures that Jesus is not merely the subject of, but he is the Lord of. Jesus, as the Son, is one with the Father and the Spirit who inspired and breathed out the Old Testament scriptures. Why then would he abolish what he himself gave? Why would he destroy or invalidate what proceeded forth out of his mouth? Has the word of God changed? Can truth be repealed and replaced by truth? No. God's word, which is the law and prophets, has not changed. Jesus did not come to abolish it, and neither should we. There have been major attempts in the history of the church to do away with the Old Testament. Marcion was a heretic who viewed the two Testaments as representing two different gods, And if we view the Old Testament as speaking about a different God, we'd want to do the same as Marcion and seek to abolish it. For these men gathered around Jesus and hearing his teaching, the Old Testament was all they had. It was their life, their culture, their history, their religion. And Jesus says, I'm not destroying that. I'm fulfilling it. That word fulfill is a specific word. It's not the word for keep or the word for do. 
It's the word fulfill. Jesus is the true and complete meaning of the law and the prophets. He is the only one who fulfills. In Matthew's gospel, that's Jesus's work, the work of fulfilling. It belongs to him and him alone. That is Jesus's mission. I'm not gonna get rid of it, but I'm pressing into it and carrying it on to its intended conclusion, to its prophesied end, to its final destination. Look with me at verse 18. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 18 builds on verse 17, beginning with this word, amen. Truly. It's the first time this word is used in the New Testament, and it is a word that also belongs to Jesus. It's a word of authority to say that all will take place of what was said of old. An iota and dot were the smallest features of writing, like a comma for us or a point on a letter. If the iota and dot will not pass away from the law, neither will the whole letter, sentence, paragraph, chapter, or book. If the least of the instructions of the law will not pass away, like tithing, mint, and dill, and cumin, then the weightier and greater matters will most certainly be fulfilled, matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Matthew 23, 23. Let us pause here and reflect upon how shocking of a statement this really is. The law was already a high standard of obedience to reflect covenant loyalty to God. The prophets continually called God's people to repent and return to God and live according to his ways. The law or the instruction of God set forth a standard of living in a way contrary to the ways of the world for a people called by God, set apart by God to be distinct from the world. We saw that when Jesus said, you're the salt and you're the light of the earth and of the world. This people was to represent God's sovereignty and reign among all the nations of the earth who put their trust in worldly kings and kingdoms. God's people instead were to say there's a heavenly kingdom whose king is God and he only shall we serve. And yet the law was not kept by God's people. God's instructions were not obeyed. Just this last week in my Bible reading, I read about God giving the commandments to Moses on Sinai. And while Moses is up on the mountain, what are the people doing? They're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. And finally, what do they say to Aaron? We need a God that can take us back to Egypt. This man, Moses, who knows what happened to him? 
And so you remember the story, right? Everyone gave their gold and earrings, offered it up to Aaron, and Aaron fashioned a golden calf, said, behold, you're God. And when later Moses called him out on it, he said, I don't know what happened. They, they gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. But the scriptures go on later to say, no, Aaron, you made that. It's the work of man's hands. Moses came down that mountain with the tablets of stone and he threw them down and they broke. And forever now we speak of the law as being broken, right? Because it was not kept then and it hasn't been kept since. With the law, because it is God's word, it is all or nothing. James chapter two, verse 10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Everyone has pet sins and they like to say that person's sin is greater than that person's sin and it's certainly greater than my sin. But according to the scriptures, if we have broken the law even in so much as a lie, something small, we've broken the whole thing. We don't get to pick and choose what we believe and what we obey. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19 continues a series of connecting statements that become more shocking as they proceed. Whoever, therefore, based on what Jesus has revealed about his mission in coming to fulfill the law and the prophets so that all that is contained in the law will take place in him, Jesus then converts this saying into a kingdom principle. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. That word relaxes is the same root word translated in verse 17 as abolish. If you're taking notes in your Bible, you can go to verse 17 and circle the word abolish. And also here in verse 19, the word relaxes, same word. In other words, let us not do with the law what Jesus does not do with the law. Jesus did not come to abolish it, so we shouldn't either. And in fact, the scriptures will teach us that the law is a good thing. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law has a function, even today. We imagine the Jewish religion is being consumed with obeying the law, obeying the law, obeying the law, so that they might earn God's favor through their obedience. But that's a miss. Scholars have pointed out that the Jews viewed their obedience not as a means of earning favor, 
but as an expression of loyalty to God who had delivered them. And this was really what the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law were so concerned with, faithfulness, keeping the law so that the people would not fall back into idolatry again. Remaining loyal to God, their Redeemer, worshiping the Lord and serving him only. This text is where kingdom living and covenant loyalty collide. Matthew chapter 5, 19 again, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is how we know Jesus is talking to his followers and not to the lost or unbelievers. Both those who relax the commandments and those who do them will both be in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Take note of this. Because entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not determined by keeping the law. Amen? It never has been. It never will be. But faithfulness and obedience do matter. So much so that the one who does what the law instructs and teaches what the law instructs will be called great in the kingdom. And the one who relaxes them or abolishes them and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. Do not think that in heaven we'll all have the same standing. Yes, we'll all be saved. Yes, we'll all be made new. Yes, we'll be glorified and be in the presence of our Savior. Yes, we will worship and serve him forever. But do not think that what we do on earth does not matter at all. What we do and what we teach has a kingdom impact This is why I believe it is possible for someone who is on their deathbed in their last dying breaths to find salvation in Jesus. But for someone who has lived and heard the gospel, it is risky, if not unlikely, for such a person to come to faith in their last moments. Because what we do with what we've been given Matters. That's what Jesus is teaching here. He gave the law. He spoke through the prophets. If we set them aside, relax or abolish them, we rid ourselves of what God has given and rid ourselves of knowing God through Christ. Jesus is not maintaining the law. He is transcending it. He is intensifying it. If we abolish what went before we certainly won't adhere to what it is being built upon. For Jesus, entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not about restrictions. It's about righteousness. Look with me at this last verse, verse 20. Again, with authority and with a connecting word, Jesus says, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
When Jesus says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, it sounds like a condemning statement. But in context, it's a conditional statement. Which context are you in as you hear this message? Sin condemns us all. Being without Christ condemns us all. In fact, Jesus said in John 3, 18, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Such a person has not believed in the great fulfiller of the law and the prophets. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have heard these words applied to us as a statement of condemnation. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And without a Savior, we never should never could, and never would. But Jesus, and Jesus alone, makes that statement of condemnation conditional. Meaning Jesus makes an exception. He opens a door. He sends forth an invitation. He provides a way by which anyone may enter into the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless, this is the condition, unless your righteousness exceeds, surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were meant to be teachers of the law and examples by living in obedience to it, role models. Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They don't practice what they preach. This is shocking. Based on what Jesus has said, his highest praise should be for the scribes and Pharisees. But in Matthew, they received Jesus' harshest words. They're hypocrites. And this attitude of hypocrisy is what Jesus is beginning to rebuke in this sermon. It is not impossible for your righteousness to exceed the scribes and Pharisees. Because true righteousness is not an outward adornment scribes and Pharisees. True righteousness is not in works. True righteousness is the work of God upon the heart. Entrance to the kingdom of heaven is restricted by righteousness in such a way that what we say must align with what we do. And our doings are an overflow of what is in our heart. And only one person has ever had such a righteousness. It was he who came to do what he said in the law and prophets as the fulfillment of them, who gave his life, shedding his blood 
as the sacrifice of atonement for us on the cross, fulfilling in his one offering on behalf of all, every offering prescribed in the law. So that by the cross and through the cross of Christ, we may worship God in spirit and in truth as those who are made righteous inwardly in the heart, who become, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, the righteousness of God. Romans 10 verse 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus will later say in Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Church, Jesus did not come to make things easy. He came to make things impossible without him. If we read through the law and the prophets and miss Jesus, we need to go back and read them again. And as we read, we are going to see God's love in them. It's a law love. The law was not given as a means of punishment. It was given as a loving guide to guide us to Christ, to keep us until Christ, by whom we are made righteous and enter into the kingdom of heaven. We know who we are. Jesus has already shown that. What does all of this mean now for what we are to do? Jesus will go on to explain all of this in his teachings from on high. But before we go on, before we enter in, we must first receive a surpassing righteousness that only Christ gives. Jesus has made some shocking statements We're all compelled to think about them carefully and prayerfully and respond to him because of what he has done for us. Thank you again for listening to this message. I pray that God would accomplish his purpose in you through the preaching, hearing, receiving, and believing of his word. If you wish to share any comments or questions about the message you have heard, please call Southside at 256-353-8814 or visit us on the web at southsidebaptist.net. Also, make sure to subscribe or follow this podcast to receive a new message each week.